Welcome to the Who's Left podcast, a show about Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm recording from Bloomington. Today on the pod, we continue the big anniversary week spectacular and fun drive with Monroe County Democratic Party Chair David Henry. We will briefly discuss his career and entry into politics, his candidacy for county council, and the duties of a county party chair. We'll also zoom out to look at that role in relation to the state party, congressional districts, and the DNC. Finally, we examine the structure of the party, building power within that structure, and the difficulties of getting such a massive machine to move in your desired direction. Look, I'm a leftist. I avoided the Democratic Party for years. The foundation of this house sucks. It is hard to reconcile with the history of the institution. The two most important foundational personalities in the party were slaveholding Southerners, Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, the first of whom fathered six children with the enslaved girl he was sexually assaulting, and the latter marched thousands of indigenous people to their deaths. This was the party of the Confederacy, the Klan, and Jim Crow, the party of corrupt machine bosses from William Tweed to Richard Daly. From its founding, the organization positioned itself as the protector of the sovereignty of the people, the party of the common man, and it still does. But the people and the common man only meant white people until at least the FDR administration. Even then, many of the New Deal's programs at best overlooked and at worst overtly discriminated against black and Hispanic Americans. Only after the party finally embraced civil rights and the Nixon-Reagan Southern strategy wooed all the old racist Dixiecrats across the aisle did Democrats resemble something like a European-style social democratic party I could support. This lasted, what, half a generation? Already, by the Carter administration, Democrats were beginning to flirt with neoliberalism, and after big presidential election losses in 1980, 84, and 88, Bill Clinton consummated the party's relationship with free market capitalism. There were cigars. I'm a leftist. I voted for Ralph Nader. Weiss. And yeah, I almost exclusively voted for Democratic candidates down ballot. It's not like I would vote for a Republican. But I always considered myself an independent and did not register as a member of any party. I became a registered Democrat in 2008 so I could vote for Barack Obama in the primary. And I held such, uh, what's the word, hope for a transformative presidency, you know, some change but was so disappointed as he governed like another neoliberal, and the party forgot down-ballot races exist. Bernie Sanders in 2016 represented the kind of Democratic Party I'd like to see, and I was extremely disillusioned when he came up short. I thought about staying home in November, voting third party, or even voting Trump out of spite. Yeah, I know. But first of all, I didn't. And second, I don't think anyone knew he was going to be that bad at that time. But I held my nose. I went into that booth. Okay, it's not really a booth. And voted for Hillary Clinton. Why? There was much talk on my left about Bernie getting screwed, the DNC rigging the primary, and so on. But it just wasn't true. I mean, yes, the primary rules that year, the awarding of superdelegates and whatnot favored her. But those rules were known far in advance, and regardless, she simply got more votes than my preferred candidate. The Bernie got screwed trope was amplified by bad actors on social media, and way too many leftists fell for it. I pulled the lever. Okay, there isn't really a lever. 
for Hillary, uh, for Hillary Clinton, because a Clinton presidency would have been better than a Trump presidency, because a Clinton presidency would have meant a liberal Supreme Court and the protection of Roe, and because a Clinton presidency would have meant less real-world harm to marginalized Americans. And there were only two real choices. We don't have a two-party system because of some grand conspiracy between Democrats and Republicans. We have a two-party system because of decisions made by some dudes in powdered wigs almost 250 years ago. Public policy researcher Benjamin Zyker suggests the Founding Fathers implemented the Electoral College to ensure a two-party system, with the goal of, quote, "...forcing candidates and party platforms toward the middle of the political spectrum, so as to forge broader-based coalitions, thus increasing consensus and compromise and reducing political strife." End quote. Now, given the extreme positions of this generation's GOP and their continuing electoral relevance, I'm not sure they achieve that goal. And in political science, Duverger's law, uh, here's the definition from Wikipedia, quote, holds that in political systems with only one winner, as in the U.S., two main parties tend to emerge, with minor parties typically split, splitting votes away from the most similar major party, end quote. So, as long as most states and jurisdictions use single-member districts with first-past-the-post plurality voting, and as long as the Electoral College exists, you only get two real choices. Voting for the minor party candidate only ever hurts the majority party candidate closest to you. Look, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. I want to see a vibrant multi-party system where citizens can vote their conscience without screwing themselves. This requires eliminating the Electoral College and introducing something like ranked choice voting, multi-member districts, and or proportional representation. That requires constitutional amendment. And that requires working within the current system. Or violent revolution. Take your pick. But that is why, despite having more beef with the party than the old 96er uh, in the great outdoors, I'm a Democrat. My interview with David Henry after this message. Who's Left is dedicated to calling out Indiana lawmakers, their financial backers, and the networks of people actively working to make our lives worse by cutting education, cutting health care, cutting gaping holes in the social safety net. Those whose policies kill children via environmental degradation, lack of access to necessary health care, and lax gun control laws. Those that sow grief in our homes and communities. I will work to highlight these bad actors so we can replace them with more empathetic leadership. I will also shine the spotlight on Hoosier activists, organizations, and elected officials who are doing the hard work to build a more just, equitable, and compassionate Indiana. But I can't do this without you. Right now, the only income I bring to my household is from this project. I rely on your financial support from paid subscriptions over at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. For five bucks a month, or only $50 a year, you can help me push our state in a better direction and help my family in the process. Consider it a small investment in Indiana's future. And hey, I get it. Not everybody can afford a paid subscription at this time. You can still help. Subscribe at the free level over on Substack. Set your favorite podcast player to auto-download new episodes of the show. Rate and review the podcast on Apple, or whatever platform you use. Follow me on social media at facebook.com slash who's left. That's H-O-O-S left. I'm uh, also at 
Scott Raj 78, S-C-O-T-T-R-O-G 78, on Instagram, threads, and the platform still known as Twitter. I'm also on Mastodon at scottrodge78 at hoosier.social. Most importantly, pass on the word, forward the newsletter to a colleague, perform a rendition of the podcast through interpretive dance, make your crush a mixtape, don't just like, but share on social media. With your investment, a full-time Who's Left looks like new content every day. It looks like full coverage of the 2024 election cycle in Indiana and beyond. And it looks like zooming out to see how the forces at work in our state function nationally, even globally. I do not plan on paywalling any content because I believe in open access to information, and your support helps make that content freely available to all Hoosiers. For a wide view on the global forces at work, check out Monday's episode with guest Tom Levon. We reset the table, putting the current crisis of social breakdown in historical perspective. Yesterday, Mad Voters Chelsea McDonald stopped by to summarize the first half of the Indiana General Assembly's 2024 session. And tomorrow, Indianapolis City Councilman Jesse Brown returns to the pod to discuss his first month-plus on the council, coming into the party and then government as an outsider, and some of the resistance he's faced from fellow Democrats. Those are all available wherever you get your podcasts or at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. Friday, I'll have a written piece over there. Hope to have you aboard for the full ride. And now, my interview with David Henry. David Henry, thank you for joining the Booth Left Podcast. Appreciate it. Scott, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So, um... Let's begin by introducing you to uh, the listeners here. Uh, tell uh, tell us uh, a little bit uh, about yourself. Sure. Well, again, my name is David Henry. I am a resident of Bloomington and Monroe County here in Indiana. Um, I had moved here 22 years ago, uh, like a lot of folks do, to study at Indiana University. And when I got here for my master's degree, I found a great place to live. I, I grew up in uh, the Rust Belt in northern Ohio and was born in Pittsburgh in the Appalachia area. And I guess I've slowly been working my way across the Midwest and found a place that's uh, in my 20s really um, seemed to be a good fit. It seemed to be a home for me. And so uh, I, that's how I got here. And I've really called Bloomington home off and on for the past 22 years uh, between jobs working in government, and, uh, government contracting, and teaching at the university. Um, that is, that's how I got here. That's how I got here to the podcast today. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So you are, uh, so the day job currently is uh, you uh, are a Homeland Security instructor at the uh, IU O'Neill School of uh, yeah, I, uh, Public and Environmental Affairs. Yeah, Public and Environmental Affairs. Yeah. So I, I've worked uh, both in government contracting for about 20 years in and out of government. I've worked in county government. I've worked for the District of Columbia government. And I've done government consulting primarily in Homeland Security, emergency management activities. Um, around the country, really, for the past decade or so here from Bloomington. Um, I do teach the two courses on the topics at IU and uh, try to really share with students that are coming up in a world that's increasingly interested in everything from disasters caused by climate change to white nationalist extremism and terrorism, you know, how, how to function in governments uh, in, in our really trying times. And so um, I've had some great students who have gone on to great careers in those spaces. Um, and at least have been aware of how to approach security from an ethical standpoint. Uh, in fact, uh, our program at the, uh, is the only 
program I'm aware of in the country that requires the study of ethics as part of studying homeland security to make sure we don't end up in um, a, a catastrophic space um, like we've seen in previous administrations when it comes to security. Yeah, that's something I want to ask you about. When I think homeland security, I think, I, you know, I just I immediately go back to the George W. Bush administration in my mind. You know, that phrase is just kind of the, the, the top of everybody's minds. Yeah. And it, it's at least very much within the Republican brand, right? Whether or not it actually reflects yes. any truth, that's like their brand. So, uh, including all of the ethical hazards that go with it. So, um, yeah, tell me what, what does what does ethical homeland security look like? Well, I think it starts with an understanding of there is always going to be a friction or balance between a sense of security and addressing fear uh, with um, our freedom. And so for every motion we make that creates a, what would be a perception of security in our culture, uh, we are probably giving up some freedom along the way to achieve that too. And, and so one way to think about when we make efforts to think about how we secure a, for example, a sporting event like the big game last weekend or how we secure um, you know, something after a, a, an active shooter or active aggressor incident to make sure the school has been either... Uh, you know, locked down and or, um, you know, the, the, the people have been triaged away from the disaster. All those things are, are questions of how much freedom we're willing to give up to have those senses of security. And what we've seen in four administrations, you mentioned the Bush administration being the start of it. Um, we've had four administrations now that have uh, given us Democratic and Republican versions of what that security story looks like. And um, one of the greatest challenges in this space is that until Congress really goes back and revisits some of that 2002-2003 legislation, uh, you're at the whim of executive order on how to achieve the security, how you can have you know, President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden all look at the same piece of paper and come to different conclusions about the border, different conclusions about immigration, different conclusions about um, uh, domestic terrorism and who is a terrorist and who isn't a terrorist. We could have a whole hour just on uh, Homeland Security, and I'm, I'm sure you could go super deep detail but i want to wind things back and uh talk about uh your involvement in local democrat part oh sure uh so, so give us give us like the the short journey of like how you became shit. yeah so i would say you know after doing almost 20 years of civic the civil service in government working in county governments working in with state governments working in government contracting you know i i 2016 was a watershed moment for me. I, I, you know, we all woke up um, in November 2016 in a, in a very different reality. And I think, um, you know, many of us thought we would see. You know, we, I think, you know, the the polling suggested we were looking at another Clinton uh, type presidency uh, with Hillary Clinton uh, um, potentially winning that race. And what we woke up to was um, a very different looking America. And I guess at that point, it, yeah, I was so shocked with the, the turnout and so shocked at the reaction to uh, a country that was willing to install um, someone like Donald Trump into the presidency, an office and an institution I've studied as long as I can remember, Scott. I was one of those government kids that yeah. this is forever. <laughs> to wake up to that kind of world um, and having worked so closely with governments around the country for so long, um, I, I felt like it was time to get off the bench and do more political work. And, um, I, I've always had an interest in it. I, did, I have two degrees in it uh, from two different universities in terms of political science. And it felt like 
I need to finally start contributing to the political dialogue. So for me, one of the frustration points uh, was, okay, well, I'm ready to go and I want to join the local party and I want to get involved. And I found you know, the inaccessibility to get involved in a local party to be a little frustrating. I don't think it was anything particular in Monroe County or Indiana. I think it was sort of a, um, uh, you know, a, a experience where you know, if you're not asking the right questions, if you don't know how to volunteer, if you're not following maybe a perception of what or how someone gets involved in politics, you're not shaking the right hands or knowing the right people, it feels a little standoffish. So I, I think a lot of people in 2016, including myself, um, started to seek out other opportunities to be involved in the, in the dialogue. So here in Monroe County, here in Southern Indiana, there was a group of people that gathered to form um, a chapter of the group called Indivisible. Uh, that was a, pro, a proactive activist mm -hmm. uh, that formed in 2016 as sort of a... Um, uh, a, a progressive version of what the Tea Party was doing to elected officials to go to public forums. So it grew out of the Sanders campaign? Yeah, it did in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so the playbook that was left behind by the individual founders was to, yeah, you go you go to every town hall your member of Congress called, you bird-dotted them with questions, you call their offices, you flood the phones and emails with things. It was basically using the Tea Party playbook against this new Republican regime. And I met a lot of wonderful people in that movement. By 2018, you know, we had become pretty adept here in Monroe County about finding whenever our then-Congressman Trey Hollingsworth was making appearances, he sort of had a um, patrician mentality where he only went to safe spaces for him, you know, the uh, corporate interest or, um, you know, uh, meetings with private people and, and law firms. We'd never do a public event for but by 2018, yeah, you know, and he's not even from here. He wasn't from here. Yeah, you know, a guy that moves here from Tennessee and basically bought a seat in Congress for about ten million dollars. He gave that hack money and occupied just about Indiana for some time. It was not a great time to be a Democrat in Southern Indiana with Trey Hollingsworth around. And so by 2018, we had two great candidates that were in the primary, Dan Cannon and Liz Watson. And there was some energy into that primary. We got within 13 points of beating Trey Allensworth in that general election with Liz Watson. And that was the high watermark for Democrats. And at that point, I thought, well, gosh, all that energy, all that backlash from 2016. And we we were still 13 points off of knocking out a guy who didn't even live here, that no one even knew, um, kind of put me in a different direction. So. So that was my early days involved is primarily like a lot of folks, uh, a activism that gets you into the conversation. Okay. So now you're in the conversation, you're active in the party. How do we get from there to a couple years later where you're leading the party? Now you're the party. Chair. Sure. Yeah. So, so I think, and I can't speak for all counties in Indiana, but I, you know, Monroe County is a unique space. We're one of three counties that traditionally votes very democratic in the state of Indiana, three out of 92, the other being Marion and Lake County. And in some ways, Monroe County has its own kind of ecosystem about politics. It's the influence of the university. It's the influence of uh, generational democratic activism that goes back the whole way to RFK in 1968 and 72. You, you've got legacy upon legacy of democratic uh, stewardship in our community. And um, I think in some ways we've rested on those laurels a little bit. In other ways, uh, the pandemic started to show where the real gaps were in how the party stay together. So, you know, if, we, if a political party is all about putting people in rooms, getting out the vote, putting people in the square to protest, and you're all locking your houses for two years, you start to see this, this fraying uh, that occurs in the party. And, and I think at that point, um, you know, I had noticed being locked up in my house and other people being locked up in their houses, something we were losing uh, any, mo any sense of momentum or any, any sense of party. 
for me, I had this epiphany moment where I'd asked very simply for a campaign sign to be dropped off at my house as parties do. Um, and our county party chair was the one dropping the sign off at my house. And, and, and I trained Jen Crossley. I know Jen well. I was talking to Jen through the masks at my front door thing. Why on earth are you the one doing all this work? Why is the chair of the party, you know, the mighty Monroe County Democratic Party, the one doing the, we're the volunteer. They're helping you do the work. And I realized at that point, that's where we were, that, you know, no one was doing the work at the point. We had it. We had an incredible drop off and an active party work. So by 2021, um, the party goes through reorganization. Every four years, the party revotes for its leadership. And I thought at that point, I'm running for vice chair. I'm getting involved. I'm here. I, I've done some work in activism. I know people. I'm running for vice chair. I'm going to help out Jen, and we're going to have a we're going to have a team again. So I got on the board uh, as vice chair of the party. And 2021, we started to get the party back to work after the pandemic period. And by the end of 2021, I found out the thing that happens is you're, when you've worn out a party chair like that for a few years, when someone's the one doing all the work, um, they want to resign. And so Jen had an opportunity to move up to our county council, and uh, I, I ran for her job. And so I found myself from 2016 all of a sudden to 2021 being the guy on the outside uh, to running the organization uh, you know, in, in a very short order. Um, and uh, that is really a, a nutshell version of how I got into this, Scott. Okay, so now your uh, masterful coup to take over the party from the inside has succeeded, right? Kid, that kid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Open secret. Yeah, that's it, folks. Uh, yeah, it's it's an open playbook. But um, as I've often told our young college Democrats, people trying to get involved in the party, uh, maybe in fact to try to correct the way I try to get involved is that I just say, look, you know, getting involved is saying I'm involved. Right. And it's literally showing up and being there and not waiting for the invitation or the secret handshake. Like you really just have to step onto the field and say, I'm here. Uh, you got to deal with me uh, and to get involved. That's how that's really how it works. OK, so before we get to our main topic for today's conversation, I've got to ask, um, you are a sure. candidate for Monroe County Council at large contested primary. There are four candidates for three seats. Does that pose a conflict of interest with your duties as party chair? Yeah, I think I think that it is easy to create a conspiracy in the absence of information. And I want to be very careful about that because uh, in saying that, I'm not suggesting there's conspiracy theory around some other stuff. But I think, you know, if we take a giant step back for a minute and think about the state of affairs in Indiana, when it comes to finding candidates to run for office, even a county as blue as Monroe County will have a diversity of opinion and ideas. And to get to get to the, the basics of your question, I don't believe there are conflict of interest. There's no lawful conflict of interest. There's no party rule conflict of interest. In fact, many counties in Indiana have party chairs that are also elected leaders. In our party, very specifically in Marion County, uh, Myla Eldridge is the auditor of Marion County. She is the chair of Marion County Democrats, and she is the vice chair of the whole state party. Um, and so this is a, a practice that has happened and does happen where sometimes the party chair puts their name out there. Now, how you deal with that, I think, and how you approach making sure that even if the chair is running, that a candidate has space to run is, is where... I believe a good chair would say, let's welcome the ideas, have the debate, let's have the constructive disagreement and let voters decide. Now, 
that is not always the case. There are clearly other places in Indiana, around the country, where you have sort of a boss politics system where the, the chair decides who's running and who's not. Um, and, and maybe it discourages people to run. But you know, so long as I've been involved with the, um, I've made it abundantly clear, you know, we, we have contested primaries in Monroe County. We, we don't slate. Uh, we're going to have that debate in our party. And, and I think in a lot of ways we come out better in in may uh when the primary is over to see you know who where our voters want to take us uh there are sometimes hurt feelings there are sometimes sore spots but um i, I think that the perception of the conflict of interest is sometimes growing people's minds but the fact is we need the debate we need the spirit of ideas uh, to, to 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 go the other way and kind of thwart people running would be just not our values and so that's that's my that's my view on that Okay, well, then let me ask you this. Um, you're an instructor at the university. you got your job as the party chair. You're a candidate for office. Um, I assume you're not a cyborg and you have to sleep occasionally. Are you wearing too many hats? Um, there's an old quote by a Republican people, I'm on a quote, about uh, Calvin Coolidge, who once was asked something very similar in the eye. Uh, yeah, Mr. Coolidge, what are your hobbies? And they asked her, my hobbies running for office. Uh, and so I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, where some people have, maybe outside procedures for hobbies. For me, um, this this has become a bit of an avocation, you know, being able to lead a political party, to be able to yeah, be engaged in the conversation, uh, yeah, to, to be able to have uh, some ability to help make my community better. And I I appreciate sometimes where, you know, some people may look at, you know, how many hats one wears. Um, my answer to that is busy people are busy sometimes. Um, and and th- there's a lot of doers in our community that wear multiple hats and limits of um, and some of my favorite Bloomingtonians are people that own a barber shop, do comedy routine on Wednesday night, and teach Taekwondo on the weekends. And that's a real person. Um, and so um, I, I think Bloomingtonians generally wear a lot of hats, Scott. So, uh, David, I was going to ask you what uh, exactly the role of the party chair entails, um, you know, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, county Democrats and then uh, your relationship you know, going the other direction, you sure. know, district, state, national. So a, a county party is you know, one of, and, and the numbers are actually amazing, uh, Scott. You know, there are 3,143 counties in this country, and every county has a Democratic Party committee. And so there are, at that level, where you've broken down the Democratic Party to the county level, you know, there's over 3,000 people like me that are a chair of a party that is composed of a bunch of precincts. And the job of that person at the county level is to coordinate the activity at the precinct level of getting out the vote, registering voters, recruiting candidates, and, and being that booster for the Democratic Party and its community. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, the Republicans have an identical structure, same precinct structure, same chair structure, where I have a counterpart on the other side that is also trying to get out the vote, register voters, recruit candidates to run for office and fill those seats. And so at, at a very tactical level, uh, the, the county party chair in that entire hierarchy is looking at how to fill offices at the county level, it's the cities in that community, the townships in that community, and and also its own committee of Democrats that run for public political party office at the precinct level. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, you know, Indiana per capita has more elected officials than most other states. I think only Illinois and New Hampshire you know, really outrank Indiana in the number of things you can run for. And when you think about the county like Monroe County, 
you know, we had an election in 2022 where we elected, you know, a, you know uh, something like 11 township boards and uh, township trustees, which gives us like 40, over 40 individuals at the township level. Uh, you know, when you look at your city council with nine people, a mayor, a clerk, uh, we've added up to 11 and so on and so on and so on. So we, we have, you know, dozens and dozens of officials in our community that are looking at how to get ballot access, how to navigate the process to run, how to make sure they are filing their form correctly in, in the event that there's some issue to help them with that. And so the county chair's job is to help it really administer the party's team uh, uh, to, to get on the field and win. Okay, very good. So then I assume, you know, you, so you've got a counterpart in every uh, other county around here. And um, so I, I assume there's some sort of state uh gathering or yeah. uh caucus amongst you know the county chairs to to make some sort of decisions or yeah, it may be, it may be, how, how does that work exactly question it may be fruitful to step back given the statewide podcast and i'm sure there's other hoosiers thinking well how does it work in my county i've never heard of this level of organization with over 50 democrats winning and then holding seats it may be worth the taking a second to kind of talk about you know what a party is and how it's structured um you know in the united states you know we have a, a system that starts at the you know at the precinct level and you know in a, in a given county uh, you may have um in our case 82 precincts in our county uh you know every county in america you take those three thousand counties and you break them into these tiny fractions of of geopolitical pieces. And you're talking about like 175,000 precincts in the United States. So that breakdown of, of our country into the, these walkable neighborhoods of about 600 to 1,000 voters with a precinct captain is the tip of the spear of the entire Democratic Party from the DNC the whole way down into your neighborhood. And so the whole structure, the whole concept of a, of a political party on both sides of the aisle is to take a variety of precincts with outreach to those 600 to 1,000 voters with those precinct captains electing a county chair, a county vice chair, a county secretary, a county treasurer to manage the county party. From there, the counties um, in a congressional district elect a district-level version of that. So we have nine congressional districts in Indiana, and each of those congressional districts with their chair and vice chair of those counties elect a district committee. So we have a district chair, a district vice chair, a district secretary, district treasurer. And so those district officers, chairs and vice chairs, and the nine congressional districts, and some representatives of affiliated caucuses, labor, the African-American Democrat caucus in Indianapolis, the IDAC, uh, the Stonewall Democrat, among others, have, have people that serve in the state central committee. And so it's the congressional district committee members plus the caucuses that have seats at that table that elect your state party chair, your state party vice chair, your state party secretary, state party treasurer. And the state chair and state treasurer are one uh, or two of uh, 55, uh, when you include uh, the territories, um, uh, versions of, of uh, uh, those state organizations that make up the DNC, who then elect the DNC chair. And so the whole thing, you know, comes up from the precinct through the counties, through the congressional districts, through the states to elect that Democratic National Committee that has a DNC chairperson and is is the party. And so what you really end up with is something like 350,000 people that have a role as an elected or, or appointed leader in this Democratic 
central committees from Monroe County to Indianapolis to Washington, D.C. Um, and I think that when you think of it like that and you think about but your space in that space and how the organization functions, like how do you control for 350,000 people, you know, carrying the message, getting right. the registered, that it gives you a sense of the scope and scale of what both parties are really doing in the country and how that works. So that I want to talk about, you know, um, your role on the county level. Sure. And kind of we, we mentioned kind of taking our little blue island for granted right um you know we have our little area where oh boy you know we've got you know 40 50 something democrats in elected office and uh you know you know actually doing good things and having well-run generally uh responsive good government i i, I have beefs everybody has some right sure. everybody's allowed to that's fine but generally uh Monroe County is a, is well run, you know, uh, so it, it sounds like we can't really mm, translate that, you know, to our, to our district because you're just say like two out of eighteen people or whatever in uh you know in the the district uh, for voting. Uh, yeah. You run into problems with the the, the other. Uh, you know, the other county party chair. Yeah, I think I think that's a good question. And I think it comes back to maybe some fundamental flaws in what I just described to you. So uh, in a lot of ways, we're still living in a in a precinct model that it bones, you know, its structure goes back and, uh, 198 years. So I'm not kidding. You know, the Democratic Party just celebrated the 198th birthday on January 8th. Uh, and it is the longest continuous serving party in the world. That's our, that's one of those historical nuances. But, you know, as we approach President Day, I think it's kind of funny to think about forgotten president. So we are living in Martin Van Buren's world. Uh, this was Van Buren's vision of how to get Andrew Jackson elected to break the country down into these little isolated precinct type structures. Yeah. So to answer your question, when you think about what happened when, since the 1970s in our country, we've had a sorting in our county where people don't want to live in spaces yeah. that um, they don't feel comfortable. So they, they, they move to a blue space or a red space. That, that sorting in our counties has created a situation like in the Ninth District where you have three blue, well, one really blue county with Monroe County and kind of some purplish counties with Clark County and, um, and uh, Floyd County down south. And then sometimes, you know, depending on, you know, turnout in Dearborn County, we might see some bluish places. It means that in a in a very practical sense for your listeners, that Monroe County is sort of the Manhattan surrounded by Wyoming and Southern Indiana, where if you think about the way the U.S. Senate has, you know, two votes per state, you know, so to your county. So I have two votes where nearly, uh, uh, nearly uh, a third of all Democratic votes come through Monroe County in my district. But I have two votes in that committee and I have to negotiate with counties that may have some different ideas about democratic politics that, that can outvote me in a, in a more moderate sort of way. Um, and, and it does create some conflict um, there. I think there's inherent conflict built into that structure. And I bring up Martin Van Buren because it's his fault. It goes all the way back to this whole, <laughs> the whole idea of, of um, ge voting by geography instead of perhaps uh, population. And, and it, you know what, what people get mad about in the U.S. Senate, you could easily get mad about if you think about the way um, 
district structures work. It, it's totally legitimate constructive criticism. Well, yeah, no, you stole all my uh, my words about how it replicates the the, 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 the U.S. Senate. And no, no, it does. It perpetuates all of the undemocratic or anti small d democratic features. Um, and that, that are, you know, inherent in our system and just keeps baking them in. Um, and it, and it feels like that may be hard to overcome perhaps. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, a lowly, uh, precinct committee person. I want to say, I want to, you know, get, get together my band of friends and take over the the local party. Yeah. What do you really need to do? What do you really need to do? So, contemplating things. You know, how, how do you turn the head of the, 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 the machine? You know, how, do, how do you get involved? I think it goes back to something I said in the interview. Um, there, I, first of all, um, in this space, and I've learned over the years that um, you need to assert, uh, you you start coming to, going to meetings, you start showing up to events, you start being in the community. You don't wait for the handshake or the, the phone call or the text that says, God, it's time for you to join. You, you basically have to step onto the field and start showing up where your party is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I think that, you know, that can be done, you know, in, in different ways. I mean, you know, this is the Midwest. I think you break bread with people and you have conversations, but I don't think a storming the castle approach is necessarily work but 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 i do i do think there is a uh there's interesting ideas here in getting involved at a precinct level um in a system that hasn't really flexed that precinct muscle in a long time of that party discipline of, of you looking at your slice of the county as a place where you could build a precinct committee um, a, a monthly meeting among your neighbors a, a uh, conversation among voters to to get your neighborhood from going from a 20 percent voter turnout to an 80 or 90 percent voter turnout is start is, is the beginning of that conversation you duplicate that through a county committee where you need uh you know between your chairs and vice chairs submitting how many uh precinct captains and and um vice captains you have in a county, you know, if you have the majority in our case, our county of 164 of those, uh, you can start to like leadership that maybe reflects a different vision of what you would like your party to be. Um, I do think that while in Monroe County, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to democratic views, yeah. viewpoint, um, you know, the, I've taken a different leadership role in terms of how, how I, I think about progressive politics and how we move the entire, you know, uh, plot plot diagram of our party in a direction we can talk about that in a minute but if you're in a rural county and you're listening to this thinking like well gosh there's no hope it's like no there actually is hope it is it starts with uh for for people in indiana looking ahead to the midterm primary of may of 2026 when our when you can go to your election board office register to run as a precinct committee person in your county and then go knock doors in your neighborhood and tell registered democrats why you're running to be this lowly slice of a position and a party party leadership with the hope to get people inspired to a different kind of politics in Indiana. It's really starting that simple. You got to convince 600 voters in a neighborhood that you're the person <laughs> and then you're going to speak, yeah. you're going to speak out those values. Um, are there a lot of, and you know, I'm sure you can speak to Monroe County and, and you're little fiefdom here are there um a fair amount of vacancies for precinct committee persons statewide or here in our county here 
and statewide. Well, here in Monroe County, I've, I, I, every chair has worked hard to fill those seats. I'm very proud of the fact that we elected uh, the majority of our committee through the ballot box, that it wasn't a chair backfilling just to keep filling spots. Um, uh, but right now we have 78 of 82 positions filled here, which I think is um, considerable over the past year. But I, I think that comes by virtue of finding good diversity of voices to bring into the party, and then hopefully they'll run for those seats and have them themselves. But I guess we should back up to say that, well, what happens if you miss that window to run? Well, if there are vacancies in your committee right now, if no one is your precinct committee person in your county and you can find that out, uh, you should go talk to your your local chair and ask to be appointed. Um, you don't necessarily even need to be appointed in your neighborhood, um, though it's preferable for certain reasons, especially when in Indiana, we have a, a, a process by which we fill public offices by vote of this, this committee uh, to try to live where you're proximate to where that vacancy occurs. Um, you should talk to that. And I will say, you know, and this is you know probably where I start getting in trouble with my, my peers. Um, Monroe County has always shared our precinct list, but it's a private organization, which a political party is. I think we sometimes forget that. I'm dealing with two private organizations the Republican Democratic mm-hmm. duopoly, that um, some chairs do not share those lists. Like you'd have to really go wrestle those out of your board of elections where people ran, or you would maybe have to call the state party to say, I want to know who my committee is in, you know, County X. Um, and that, it, those are some legacy questions about how the parties evolved over the years from a very private organization where behind the mm-hmm. filled doors you selected who was going to be your slate to a more contemporary version of the party that, that demands that the transparency that we enjoy here in Monroe County. So, um, but if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, gosh, how do I get involved? How do I be that person? Yeah, it starts with really getting to know your committee, your county chair and figuring out how you can get appointed to or run for those spaces in, in your community. And and in a place that isn't, you know, Monroe or Lake or Marion County, there there very likely are vacancies yes. uh, available to be filled, yes. and it probably desperately needs filled. Yes, and we have, I mean, again, if Monroe County has a cold, I mean, the rest of the state may have, like, political COVID on some of these issues. So when we have a downturn in turnout in our county, it is, it is exponentially worse than other counties. There are counties in the state, unfortunately, that have a hard time even having a chair, vice chair, secretary, treasurer of their party, let alone a precinct committee person. And so the, the rebuilding of the Democratic Party from... 22 years ago when I moved here, where we had the Governor Manson, the Speaker of the House in Indiana's General Assembly, a senator, half of the uh, the slate in the U.S. House of Representatives to where we are now is not insignificant. I mean, there are communities that, that are so denuded that, that, that there, there may be a vacancy even in your party chairmanship of the county to go inquire about. And you should with state party to see if you need to get more involved. And... I know, boy, the National Party makes it hard sometimes to want to jump in and be a cheerleader. And I don't know, you know, how much of this you you can speak sure. of, but I always do w- want to encourage leftists and socialists and progressives to get involved in the Democratic Party because, like it or not, that's the way our system is set up it is the nature of all or nothing voting um it it, it's not like to the two parties are mandated in the constitution but the just the way our system is set up it will always devolve into a two-party system and third parties minor parties will always hurt the party they're closest to in a general election yeah and i 
I think that you're absolutely right on that. The, the duopoly um, is, is, is baked into state law here in Indiana. Um, we have cases where you know, an independent may seek to run for office and their ability to get on the ballot compared to a Democrat or Republican is exponentially harder. You, you will see situations where they will have to collect signatures to run for like a county yeah. council. And, and the parties only need to say, here's my slate of names. You, know, you just sign up and run. Uh, so the, the duopoly is uh, it baked into the law. And and that is definitely um, you know for those that have the aspirations of third parties and and trying to be more like a you know, parliamentary model like a Germany or a, a new a, a United Kingdom. I mean, good luck. I mean, because that's the so we have to accept. I think in a lot of ways the playing field is it. Um, I you know it's interesting. I, I this is a you know uh, left and progressive podcast. And so some people sometimes look at me and say, "Gosh, this is the this is the bureaucracy. This is the um, um, this is the uh, the establishment on the call here." And yet, you know, Monroe County is a little different with that. You know, I, my inspiration you know, comes from people like a Gore Vidal who would openly criticize the system and say it's just two factions of the same war party or that we're really picking between brown sugar water when it comes to, um, you know, the team red or team blue. Uh, but I think what, to get to your question about, well, you know, how, like, like if, if this is, if this is who we are and we, and we got to pick team blue over team red, if we have to pick that sugar water over the other sugar water, you know, what does that really mean for your involvement? Um, and I, and I think it comes down to a, a few different things for me. Firstly, the reason why Monroe County is the way it is, is that this community through its university culture and through people that are attracted to live around places like that, um, have typically voted left of center in primary when given a choice. This is a county that when given the choice between a Jerry Brown and a Bill Clinton, went with a Jerry Brown and went with a, uh, Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton and went with a Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton. What happens? When that doesn't happen, right? When the, that candidate doesn't come through, is uh, voters stay home, and so we end up in a situation where our progressive left in our county will sometimes say, "I don't see me here." You know, we tried, uh, you know, we got involved, we did all that work, and we just couldn't overcome the more centrist impulse of the Indiana Democratic Party, which is, you know, you know, kind of back to your comment about you know being surrounded by more purple places for me, right? So how does that progressive get there? You know, how does somebody say, you know, how do I bring a democratic social vision or progressive vision into the party? Um, and it, it, it really is, um, um, I think, accepting the, the, the conditions of the battlefield that you're entering uh, instead of trying to throw your hands up and say, well, I'm just going to create my own sandbox. So, it, and what I mean by that, right, is that if you can figure out um, how a precinct structure works and that really it's the accumulation of very small pieces that start to make up a whole, um, I, I've always felt that um, once ever, whoever figures this piece of the puzzle out in the outpost, or really figures out that you need a grassroots door by door, the inspirational effort, uh, will eventually turn the head of the, the, the giant, which is the party. Um, and I think that's really the most important message for people trying to get involved in that space um, and is, is, is figuring out the rules of engagement and then getting into the space to see if you can change that. Um, I, I left something out. Uh, you had said, well, the state or national party kind of makes it hard. And I would agree with that, uh, Scott. You know, I grew up in yeah. Ohio uh, in the 1990s. Um, it was the Clinton you know, dot com, amazing, you know, the, the amazing infrastructure, the end of history, we won the Cold War, the, the peace dividend is, right. the economy's booming. At the same time, my Ford plant moves out 
country. You know, my my friends that had dads in the UAW were chasing at work all over. I didn't experience the same economic uh, enjoyment that perhaps our East right. and West Coast uh, brothers and sisters did. And I think that that is where we are right now. Like it is really hard locally to say. Well, you know, the economy is doing so well they failed. And yet, you know, we see the inflationary effects in Indiana. Uh, we see the disparity in income and the, the cost of living that just seems to be really distorted. And yeah, it's really hard to carry a national message of, you know, the president's doing a great job, but the governor is a Republican here and they're not doing a great job. And then locally, we got this Democratic Party that's doing a great job. And I don't really feel like I've got a lot on my plate if I'm earning under a certain dollar amount a year in the community. That is why I think yeah. messaging at a local level is very hard, but it comes back to putting people out of door and saying, how is it working for you? And then maybe we get a, a, a democratic version of our conversation here, county by county. It's going to be different for each county in our state, for sure. Is, um, is the Indiana State Democratic Party doing it right? Um, I feel like now, this is me. This is the leftist speaking. Sure. Like, we've been running after these, this imaginary middle that doesn't exist for a long time. Um, in, in Indiana, since especially 2010, the big red takeover, uh, where they, you know, make their gains into the district maps. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats have been running centrists for governor, uh, for senator, you know, the big state level offices, even the, 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 the offices for, for Congress. Um, and we keep getting our asses kicked. Is it time for a different message? Um, yeah. So let me let me give you a think where the questions are. I think maybe places like Monroe County versus places that maybe have a different view. Um, I think there are two battlefronts in in this debate and the party right now. I, I think this is a fair thing to say for everyone looking statewide here. I think there's a school of thought that I belong to, and I know some others do, that when you go back to the 2008 election and you look at the map of Indiana and you realize that Barack Obama won this state, first time a Democrat wins since LBJ. You know, the question is, well, how did that happen? And, and the answer to that is there are 15 counties that carried the state for Barack Obama, 15 out of 92, which is the lesson should be that if we were thinking strategically about, well, how do you get people elected statewide in Indiana? Do you put, do you, do you advance a 92 county strategy where we have to build up everything? everywhere and build a bench everywhere and get Democrat everywhere. Or if you have scarce resources, do you try to, you know, beg and steal and plead with the Obama era volunteers and say, how do we capture that lightning in a bottle again? How much of it was the charisma of the candidate and 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 just Barack Obama being a, a, a sweet generous singularity? How much is it that we look at the counties that won in the state in, in 2008 that were all college counties, you know, uh, Tip Canoe, um, Delaware, uh, the Chicago region, St. Joe's. You look at these places and say, well, I mean, they all have college communities. Clearly, there was some energy there. 15 counties wins Indiana, period. We know, I mean, that is the map. 
But it goes back to our yeah. geography problem, right? If if you say that and you're in a district or statewide leadership, you're basically excluding all those other counties and saying, well, you know, it, good luck to you, but we're focused on, you know, this, this 15 county solution to, to run the table. Um, I, I, and, I, and the problem is those 15 counties are split into all the congressional districts. So you have the high-powered blue counties in, in the hierarchy. They're split into the districts that have to deal with district-level voting, state-level voting. So the structure prevents us from, I think, a lateral communication to say, how do you tether these 15 counties that really carry the debate? Um, that, to me, is the debate. It is the thing that... Um, yeah, I, I can see a path forward with it. I know other counties that are in those 15, we've had these discussions that potentially we can carry forward with, but it, it's sort of, um, you know, but what we've done is a kind of different approach since 2008 and expect a different result every cycle. Um, you know, so I guess if, you know, if I were state chair for a day, I'd be thinking about, you know, how do you, um, capture that 2008 magic because we're not that far removed from those voters now grant some of them clearly have passed on demographically speaking right but but the, it's not like we've this we're not talking about the fdr generation here we're talking about in our lifetime scott we've seen the state go blue at a statewide so um that to me is the big schism you know when do we have the real conversation that that when there's nothing that wins like winning that if we can uh, capture statewide wins through a strategy like that it will eventually provide the coattails down into counties that maybe get their first win on commissioner first win on county council first win on a township board and start to build a bench the second thing i'd say in a hurry is and how you know that maybe there are some challenges is that we're facing a situation in the state where we have four four congressional seats that are now open races because Republicans aren't running, right? And the bench yeah. and the bench to fill those, like when you look at the people that filed in like the 8th district, you have a, a bench a mile long of Republicans ready to run for the 8th district seat. Yeah. And, and yeah. You know, there was some real work to try to find some candidates for the Democratic side. And those are including cities like you know, uh, Terre Haute and Evansville, where you would think there might be a former mayor or somebody sitting around that might want to run for Congress. But we just can't get there. And so the bench building activity where, you know, we are so denuded on the, the Democratic side on our bench to find that next statewide candidate, that next statewide candidate, the Republicans, in theory, have the next six governors lined up. And I couldn't tell you the next six Democrats that are going to be running for governor, but I definitely could make guesses as to who, who, you know, the rest of our lifetime, the likely governors of Indiana, yeah. and that should get people motivated to get a little more involved. It seems backward, right? Like this is the Democratic Party. We're the party of the people. Why are we having a bench problem? Like the 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 Republicans should should have they they shouldn't have depth to choose from you know and and they 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 don't I mean they 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 groom certain people and put them in spots they're very good at it but shouldn't we have options at least where where are people yeah I think I think in some ways we do have options I think but I think when you look at the gerrymandered map and say I'm looking at a situation where. I, I, in order for me to get to 50%, I got to climb out of a 22-point hole just to get to half of the votes in that community. Yeah. Um, I, I think that becomes the challenge where serious people say, you know, if I'm going to give a year of my life to run for Congress, run for Senate, run for something, 
And, and I know the closest I'm going to get is like a failing grade on an exam, like 30%, right? That, 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 that it is daunting, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I think about running even in the race I'm running here. And even though, you know, I have uh, great potential in a democratic primary in a democratic county to be seated, um, it's still work, but it, to work at a level where, you know, the mountain is that high, you need some very great people or some very confident people or some people that know they're signing up for defeat, but they're gonna, they're gonna be the next person to take a chip out of Mount Republican and try to get over the thing. So it, 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 yeah, it, it's almost accepting that you're going to have, you know, several cycles of just accepted loss to keep shipping away. And again, it comes all the way back down to the end of the conversation. You know, if we do not have a functioning precinct committee that understands that when you are seated in a county party and you have that little slice of a map, if you can't account for your neighborhood and you, and that if you can't even make the debt in your neighborhood to say, I knocked every door, I tried to get my neighbors registered to vote. I literally drove them to vote that day. Um, it, it's it we're in some challenges i mean so i do think so i do think it does fall back on the party to say you know if you fail to prepare you prepare to fail as coach wooden taught us right you if you can't get the conditions where you have a higher voter turnout because you haven't done the work of actually registering voters and trying to talk to your neighbors you just can't expect that people are all going to show up and vote unless you wait for another barack obama and that, that may take a while so yeah um well I think you've done a really good job, you know, explaining like the, the, how it works. Um, like I was saying, it's not, especially for people to, to the left of me, even I'm pretty far left, but you know, I know, I, I know there's people who are really, really, really frustrated with our system as it exists because it's like, uh, a couple of 200, hundred year old, like jalopies playing, uh, demolition derby yeah. with each other, you know, or, or, uh, or, you know, it's like, it's like steering an aircraft carrier, yeah. right? These things don't turn around quickly. Um, and I mean, sure, you know, you can try and take over the system in like a better canoe, but I don't know. I think it's probably going to be easier to take over that 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 200 year old uh hulking battleship yeah as opposed to just blowing it all up and starting over um yeah i i think i think either way you're you're it's sort of like um you know i hate to be the guy that serves the bowl of vegetables no one wants to eat at thanksgiving but it it kind of comes off this way to say either path of either doing the work of uh, within a party structure that has just been so neglected and, and unmaintained uh, and doing the work of creating a party that does the work of grassroots door knocking and, and voter registration is still the same level of work, right? It's either go form another party mm -hmm. that literally builds up from the base and gets that 20%, yeah, and attempts to run people to get them on the ballot, like libertarians usually try to do or something like that. Or you try to take the, the, the car and, and take it to the shop and fix it up and actually get it working again. Yeah, it, it's a tremendous amount of work. I mean, you know, when I was involved in you know, an activist group that was engaged in progressive politics, like an indivisible, then the point of indivisible was to advocate for Medicare for all and the student loan debt relief and all the things that I think three generations of Americans under the age of 45 are clamoring for. Um, it, it, mm -hmm. there's an urgency and that urgency, um, it, it's like a firework. It burns fast 
um, you, you, you get that that first campaign or that first protest under your belt, and then you lose, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, it's all for naught. Um, the, the hardest challenge, I believe, and I don't mean to, you know, be lecturing progressives and left of center folks. I mean, I, I, I think of myself as like pragmatically progressive when I speak this way, is that you have to accept that this change requires retail. It requires convincing people that do not want to be convinced that, that there's a solution that's different. And it, it is it is this really hard work of um, persuading um, people outside of our noise machines to register to vote and vote. Um, and I do think to maybe put a fine point on it, we are probably in another cycle putting that to the test. Uh, we have some opportunities here in our election yeah. cycle locally where we have some progressive voiced people that are really good at explaining progressive values to more moderate voters. And we have some moderate candidates that are really good at explaining moderate values to moderate voters. And we're going to see what shows up. And we may be in for another lesson or round of this until we finally take the lesson. And that's that's the truth. Well, uh, yeah. I, you know what? The, the the difficult work of organizing of party building of coalition building it it, it it might not be sexy and i really really get the urge to want to blow everything up but uh because uh, it's a, it's it's a huge it's a huge remodeling job right sure. um and and I'm, I'm a guy that does this for for a, a living or you know at least i was there for a while like it, it's always easier to start with a clean slate and and, and fill with all all new yeah. material but like i don't think our side's prepared for that now now like the fascists have been preparing for the system to be blown up they're ready they have the guns yeah. i don't you know when the system blows up like ex like left accelerationists if, are, are, are we going to come out ahead? I don't think so. Yeah, I think that urgency is real, too. But, but, but I think you just put on it. You know, the, the project called the Republican Party after the fall of Nixon has been a 45-year march to this spot. It, it required a curve. And, yeah, and so if we're going to be just cold political analysts for a minute, you know, when you look at what came out of the, the religious right of late 1970s, the Reagan Revolution, the Gingrich uh, overtaking of Congress, all of that has been a very long trajectory with one goal in mind, and it was the Dobbs decision. I mean, so to have on the on the wall your target and say, I don't care what we do every day, all these distractions, it's all about rulers' life. And for, for, to, to, that'd be a generational mission to teach your kids and grandkids that's the North Star. That has to change. That level of discipline is just unheard of in democratic politics. Like, if you had to say today, like, well, you know, our mission, and it would take my grandkids to get there, is to, you know, to have Medicare for all, you know, or to have um, a or a return to reproductive rights in our culture. Like, are we even remotely prepared, you know, to set up the long game? And the answer is, yeah, no, it, it is it is the building, of, you know, the, the, the accepting that you're building the battleship and you're thinking about the 50-year plan. That, I think if, if, if progressives and Democrats get in the mindset that we're now talking about generational shift and not something that happens in one or two election segments, like that, that is a hard um, retreat or like you to ask me to the, to the Democrat to take a retreat and go to the secret meeting and figure this out. Like, no, this is the serious conversation. Um but I think to your analogy of restoring the house is intriguing because again, you know, if the party is almost 200 years old and it started with, you know, a Southern Democrat slave owner and a Northern Democrat, you know, ambivalent 
uh, businessmen, you know, who formed a coalition to like the first populist president, Andrew Jackson, a party that was a pro-slavery party that became an anti-capitalist party that became FDR's near socialist party, the closest that we've ever seen to a labor party in this country under FDR's presidency, to a 1970s George McGovern party, to a Jimmy Carter party, Bill Clinton party, Barack Obama, you know, that neoliberal version of the party. We have seen the House renovated a few times. And those renovations have come by way of a generation coming up to say, the way grandpa did it doesn't work anymore. Um, I do think we are in the interesting class where activists are listening to us talk to them. And they're learning a little bit about, well, gosh, all of the states is getting any of us to run for precinct chair to flip, you know, my county. Um, it's a start. It, it's what happened in Bloomington in 1972 when we had activists that were very democratic, you know, take a community that had six Republicans on city council, uh, I'm sorry, eight Republicans, they one majority to a, to a, to a complete, or to, I'm sorry, a, a, a one, eight Republican majority, eight members to eight Democrats, one member to elect a Democratic mayor in 1972 and never look back. We've had Democratic mayors here for over 50 years. Like we had that local revolution where the party was taken over and run again in that way. So, so there's hope, but we are in renovation mode and the neoliberal movement that dates back to Bill Clinton's democratic leadership council, the, the politics of the 1990s Democrats, um, is, is, is that's part of the jalopy that's showing where, and there's a generation saying, you know, do we yeah. recreate the moderate version and try, try, try to win like that again? Or do we try something different, which we know like the my County has great appeal when Bernie Sanders can show up to this town two or three times and put 4,000 people out in the middle of a field and frog marches them to vote that day. There's something going on in my community, right? Yeah. There may be a different message that people want to hear. I like that. All right. Um, well, David Henry. So before we get out of here, um, where can the people find you? Sure. Well, officially, uh, in terms of a campaign, I appreciate that that space. I'm at votedavidhenry.com. I'm running here for county council in Monroe County. Uh, and uh, we have an opportunity here to fund our values in the next few years to make sure that we're um, really putting our money where our mouth is and some of the things we've been talking about in our community and, and I forward to speaking with people in our community about maybe a, a different path as we look for housing choices and economic uh, job opportunities for my whole community not just academics not just people that um you retire here but really that that people like me that moved here with, you know just uh, trying to go to school and living in equity housing and uh trying to make it blooming and i'm very concerned about the job market in our community so if you find me there go to davidhenry.com for our party if you want to see out the north county democratic party does business uh, we're at monroe dems dms.org and uh if you are someone out there is thinking gosh how do i get my county to do a little bit like we do here in Monroe. We're obviously helpful uh, for helping folks think through some ways to do that outreach. Um, you know, we, we don't have all the answers here, but we definitely have a very talented pool of Democrats. And I need to see it all work on presidential, congressional, and senatorial campaigns. Um, and I'm happy to help inspire you all and get more involved and, and uh, hopefully build your parties all over Indiana. Very good. David Henry. Thank you so much for joining the Who's Left podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Once again, that was Monroe County Democratic Party Chair David Henry. Here are my thoughts. First of all, I really appreciate his candor. Uh, I come across way too many partisan cheerleaders and not enough Democratic leaders willing to focus a critical eye on those at the top of the party. This is a guy who gets it. 
a progressive who came into the party from Indivisible from the Sanders camp. And he understands that this is a very long game. And we all have to understand that. There are no quick fixes here. And I reject the premise we have to blow the whole thing up and start over. I think that leads down the road to an openly Christo-fascist dictatorship. Accelerationism is doom. Republicans built the machine that is currently chipping away at our democracy over more than 50 years. In 1971, Lewis Powell, whom Nixon would nominate to the Supreme Court the following year, drew up the blueprint for complete corporate oligarchic control of the country in a memo to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Through a series of think tanks and foundations, and with lots of money from the Koch, Olin, Bradley, DeVos, and Coors families, among others, economic elites shepherded the power of, as David mentioned, white evangelical Christian extremism, using race and then abortion as a wedge issue. They understood this may take decades, and the oligarchs finally got what they wanted, legalized public bribery, in 2010's Citizen United case. The religious zealots had to wait a dozen more years for Dobbs. The left better damn well understand this, but we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The party's foundation is rotten, but the House has good bones. Let's not waste a ton of time, energy, and money building a new structure from scratch. By the time we have the skeleton built, MAGA extremists might burn it down. I know it might not be a popular opinion, but if leftists like us want to remake this country in our image, we restart by remaking the Democratic Party in our image. Do you live in a county with no party chair? How about you? Is there an opening for precinct committee person where you live? Fill it. There isn't? Run next time. Show up. Make calls. Stop waiting for a savior. It's you. You're the savior. Together, we must save ourselves. Look, say you're on a hike and it starts to rain. Torrential downpour. You and your hiking partner each have a tent. Theirs is a pop-up. Sets up in no time, but it's a little leaky and not very big. Yours is nicer, brand new, all the features you wanted, but it takes some time to set up. They're both big enough for two people, but just barely. What do you do? You both cram into the pop-up, right? It might be uncomfortable, and you might get a little wet, but you won't get soaked. The lesser of two evils might suck, but it's still less evil. Next time, we'll talk to Democratic Socialist Indianapolis City Councilman Jesse Brown. See what he's been up to since taking office in January, and talk about the drippy pop-up he's sharing with Circle City Democrats. Until then, this has been the Who's Left Podcast. I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana.